Our beer of the week this week is Mountain Candy. It's an IPA from Sycamore Brewing here in Charlotte. It's one of our favorites, and we kind of needed a pick-me-up after last last week's game. It was just really bad. It's one of the few things that are good in Charlotte, to say the least, uh, because sports are definitely uh, not on the up and up here in Charlotte. So today we're going to get into the blowout uh, between the Colts and the Panthers. We hosted them at Bank of America Stadium. It wasn't at the 1 p.m. slate that most of our games are. It was at that 4 o'clock window. What were some of the key takeaways you saw? Uh, were there any bright spots uh, moving forward, or was it pretty much just tape you throw in the trash can and move on? It's definitely toilet tape. You know, you watch it and flush it. But I will say the bright spot was the defense played pretty well, considering the Colts came into the week, or to the game. They're scoring like 35-ish points per game the last three games. The defense did its job. It's just the offense, particularly the O-line and Bryce, did not help them at all. The defense held them to 13 points, but we gave them 14 points with the two interception returns for the touchdowns. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the defense held up its end of the bargain. It's the third time I think at home we've held the opposing passer to under 200 yards. We've done it four times on the year. We held Desmond Ritter under that total in week one. And it's like one of those things. It's like Evero, Evero is doing his part. You're obviously banged up. Uh, you don't have JC Horn. You don't have Marcus Haynes. There's several other guys like Shaq Thompson on IR. And yet we're still stopping people on defense. And then when you flip on the offensive side of the ball, it's just complete chaos. And there are definitely injuries there, but it's one of those things that you would think with a Frank Reich-led team, these issues wouldn't be as pertinent. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just inexcusable in my opinion. Now, we don't have the greatest personnel on the offensive side of the ball, but like, we can't allow an entire defensive line to be rushing the QB at once. Like I've seen multiple breakdowns of like separate plays, not just one separate plays where it's a five man protection. It's just the O line and they rush four, and the entire O line lost. That, that's just inexcusable. Even guys like Taylor Moten and Austin Corbett who have been stalwarts are just getting beat by guys. It has definitely been the tale of regression this year for the Panthers offensive line. We go from having arguably a top 10 unit last year to, I would say, a bottom five unit uh, so far at the halfway point. And we need to do more six-man, seven-man protections and just allow Bryce time to see if there's a guy open. And if not, to check it down or just throw it away. Uh, because taking these negative plays, whether they're sacks or the pick sixes, for instance, you're talking about offensive line breakdown on that first pick six to Kenny Moore. It's uh, the, the Colts are running under gas, Gus Bradley, a cover three maple, uh, not maple, maple. And what that means is on the weak side of the formation, they run man instead of the, the cover three concept on that side. And so with Adam Thielen coming across, Bryce Young thinks he has just uh, zone coverage and doesn't realize that he has man coverage on the back end. So when the pressure is in his face, he goes to his check down and where he was expecting Kenny Moore to be in a hook coverage, he's in the flat with the running back and he's he's taking the ball back for six. So it's one of those things that it, it was a rookie mistake. It's a learning mistake. Uh, but it's still not something you want to see at the end of the half, because I can't tell you how many times this year we've seen at the end of the second half, at the end of the game, Bryce make a play where he shouldn't. He's turning the ball over. He's taking a sack. And, and those things you got to clean up. And I want to see more of that throughout the rest of the season. I, I don't care if we win as much, but if he can clean some of that up, we can focus on getting guys around him next year. 
Yeah, it was certainly his worst game of the year, in my opinion. Just uh, on top of the bad surrounding cast, there were just mistakes he didn't need to be making. I think he was trying to force stuff with them being down for a good chunk of the game. But yeah, like I said, this is just toilet tape. Watch it, flush it. And we have to get ready because the Panthers play again in about, what, 52 hours, something like that, 53 yeah. hours. So they're going to have to be ready. And like during this game, we lost Brian Burns to a concussion and C.J. Henderson. They're both in the concussion protocol. Just came out that they're not going to play in that game. So we're going to need to be ready. What's what's even scarier is the last time we saw the Bears on Thursday night, they blew the doors off the Washington Commanders. And it's one of those things that that would – that would not be a good note at this point in the season. If we we go up to Chicago and we get our asses handed to us, I, I, I don't know, man. Like Scott Fitterer definitely seems like he is on the hot seat. He is probably looking on his way out the door. But Reich may not be far behind if he can't start pulling some production out of this team. Absolutely. They're getting Justin Fields back, uh, I believe, or at least he's practicing at full capacity this week. They just traded for Mont they traded a second round pick for Montez Sweat. So it's not going to be any easier than it would have been a couple weeks ago. So hopefully, uh, like we like I said, just flush it and get right. And we'll be able to go out and actually perform in Chicago on Thursday. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely advantageous things and looks that we should get against this Chicago Bears defense. Obviously, their interior, their defensive line has some stalwarts that they drafted. Like you said, they bring in Monte Sweat. Uh, you wonder if that defensive line is going to cause some issues, especially with our Panthers offensive line. And it's just at this point, like, again, I, I'm I'm shocked to not see like play action where we have six, seven man productions. I have yet to see Bryce Young really have like a good, healthy dosage of that because that would probably get DJ Chark more involved. That will probably get Adam Thielen more open than he already is. And it's, it's some of those things that I, I want to see a mixture of that. So there's, there's a blend and marriage between the run and the pass because we're going to have to be balanced going into Thursday night. This isn't a game where we can just lean on Bryce to throw it 40 plus times and he'll win it for us. Yeah, hopefully Thomas Brown's able to bounce back and do some more of the stuff that he did against Houston instead of what happened last week. But uh, moving on from the Panthers game, we've reached the halfway point of the NFL se regular season, at least. And I think it's good to check in on some of the preseason predictions that we made back before the season started in our preseason predictions episode. So do you have any predictions that you're proud of so far this season, Steve? The... Odds on favorite currently to win defensive player of the year is Miles Garrett at the moment. And he looks every bit the part that I predicted him to kind of be this year, especially with Jim Schwartz coming in the town, them adding some of the pieces they did in free agency. It was uh, something we kind of went more in the depth with when we broke down the AFC North. But I, I'm definitely that that's probably the one I'm most proud of. Uh, Max Crosby was my underrated player of the year. Uh, he has been lights out for a bad Raiders team. So just seeing two edge guys a year after kind of looking at pressures in the big data bowl, I thought it was kind of cool to see that some of that translated uh, from the data I looked at a couple of years prior to what's going on this year. Absolutely. Miles Garrett is on fire. I think the addition of Jim Schwartz has really unlocked him along with the other people they brought in along the defensive line. That that whole unit's just been revamped and he's been the biggest benefactor of that, I think. Max Crosby's been lights out as well. I think with Tyree Wilson like coming along slowly, it's like sh shown some more light on Crosby himself and he's performed up to the standard. 
I think the one I'm most proud of is we we ended up doing a breakout player and an X factor for each team in that episode. And my breakout player for the Seattle Seahawks was Boye Mafe, their second year edge rusher. And he's been outstanding this year, especially the past like six or seven weeks. He's had a sack, at, at least one sack in the last seven games. He has a couple forced fumbles and a fumble recovery. He's just been a force for them this year. That was one of the concerns we had for the Seahawks this year was how are they going to beef up their defensive line? And he's really taken a step, especially with Uchenna Nwosu. I don't know if he's on season-ending season ending IR, he but he's been on IR. He is? Okay. Yeah, he tore so his like, back earlier in the year. Gotcha, gotcha. So, yeah, he's uh, Mafe's really stepped up, and that's been a big reason why the Seahawks' defense has looked as real as it has the past couple of weeks. Oh, no. Without a doubt, I thought he was on the, the trajectory to kind of be a bust after his rookie year last year. But what he's done, uh, he's exactly what you you labeled him as. That was the the one one of the few breakout players I was a little iffy on when we were doing our predictions episode. But you you nailed the uh, you you put the hammer on the head of the nail there. And who do you have, because we've been talking about awards, uh, kind of leaning back into that awards episode, who is the guy that you had winning MVP? Do you think he's still kind of on the trajectory to be that for you? I had Lamar Jackson, and I do think he's on that trajectory. I think uh, we might have talked about it a little bit last week, or we talked about it just throughout the week and over the weekend, that I think Lamar's been one of the most valuable, if not one of the best quarterbacks just in terms of skill level and playing at a high level this year. He just doesn't have some of the counting stats like the yardage totals or the touchdown totals that a lot of other guys have. So hopefully uh, over the next couple of weeks, they're able to build on the success they've had the last few to get him some more touchdowns, some more passing guards, stuff like that. But I absolutely think that Lamar has been lights out this year and he's playing at a, an incredibly high level now that uh, they're figuring out Todd Munkin's scheme and all the pieces are fitting together. There's a reason there in that division where all four teams are currently in the playoff picture in the AFC. There's a reason that they're, I think, two games ahead of everyone else. They are. They're they're head and shoulders above a lot of teams in the AFC, above most of the teams in their division. They're a really well put together team. And the exec of the year that I, I kind of predicted was Eric DaCosta for the, the Ravens, because exactly like you alluded to, they bring in Todd Monken, but he was able to kind of replicate what the offense needed to kind of implement that system. And that's a night and day from what we've seen with Fitter and Reich this past offseason. He brings in Odell Beckham. He brings in Nelson Aguilar. They draft, say, Flowers. They add all these receiving threats. And Lamar's dropping back the pass at a higher rate than I think he has his entire career. And it's working out for him. It hasn't all come together. Like you said, they're still working on gelling it. And hopefully with that, those, those counting stats that everybody kind of looks at, uh, from like a general consensus standpoint, those go up when people really get serious about the MVP voting, because I think he is one of the most impactful players, uh, not only at his position, but like throughout the league. Like this is this is a guy that is looking every bit the part of that 2019 unanimous MVP candidate. Yeah, for sure. I think uh when we get to MVP, MVP voting at the end of the year, it kind of comes down to like teams with the best records. And if the Ravens can hold on to what they're doing, I believe they're seven and two right now, they're going to be in the mix for that number one seed in the AFC. So if they can pull that off, I think Lamar Jackson will get a lot more consideration than he is now. A hundred percent. Now, the last 
I'll throw in two that I was high on, and then we'll kind of transition to the the takes that we were proved wrong on so far into this season. But I thought the three AFC North teams would make the playoffs, those three being Baltimore, Cincy, and Pittsburgh. Like you said, Cleveland is in the mix. I think it's going to come down to Cleveland's going to be in or Pittsburgh's going to be in, and the other one's going to be out when it's all said and done. Um, and that the Chargers would miss the playoffs this year. And they're four and four. They have a rough slate ahead of them. The Chargers schedule does not look easy from here on out. And that goes into a take I had this summer with some of my coach ranking stuff, some takes I've had throughout this season. And that is, I think Mike McCarthy is starting to pull away from Kellen Moore. Uh, there's a marginal difference in my coach rankings. I think when you look at the Cowboys and Chargers offense, there is a little bit more production that's coming from the Cowboys. And I think that's due in part to the scheme and how Dak is playing in McCarthy's system. Yeah, the Cowboys offense is certainly playing at a high level as of late, as is their defense on the other side of the ball. I think Dan Quinn is pretty high on your rankings as well. I think he's second or third for defensive play callers. But yeah, the Cowboys have been on another level. I, st I said uh, in the offseason during the NFC East episode that I thought they had the best roster in football. And that certainly looks like they are they like they're living up to that they're still behind the eagles i believe yeah they're still behind the eagles and they're not the like the ultimate class of the nfc but i think they can make a run at the end of the year their their schedule upcoming is not as hard as the eagles or the seahawks so i think it's really going to come down to them and the 49ers of who's going to make that push for some of those higher seeds it'll definitely be interesting to see um, the first take that I'll say, um, and you had him as your comeback player of the year award. So I think we're both in agreement here. Um, but I thought Calvin Ridley would go off this year. I thought he would kind of be in tune or in the range of like 90 receptions, 1400 yards, 10 plus touchdowns. And why I think he's on pace for about like 70 receptions, 1100 yards. That's still not the gaudy stat lines I anticipated him to have. He's getting the the coverage and looks from defenses as if he's the number one, but the production just isn't there yet. So I, I'm curious, do you think he'll be able to knock off the rust the rest of the year or like say next year, he'll be able to really take a step in this offense? Or are we really seeing kind of like his ceiling as a player so far? Uh, well, in, in regards to next season, I do believe he's a free agent. So I'm not sure where he'll end up next year, but yeah, I'm, I'm a bit uh, disappointed as well. I thought that he would have a season a little bit similar or better to that of Christian Kirk last year. And it seems that with Doug Peterson not calling plays that he isn't being fed the targets that I thought he would. I thought he was far and away the most talented receiver on the roster, but it still seems that Lawrence is able to trust Christian Kirk more, maybe just because they have a, the rapport of playing together for more than like an off season and six game or eight games like Calvin Ridley. But yeah, I thought he'd be a bit more productive as well. So that's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a one that I'm down on. Is there any other ones that kind of had you, you down or. <laughs> yeah, there's one that uh, we both have that I'll get to in a second, but another breakouts breakout player that I had in that a or NFC West division was Van Jefferson for the Rams. I thought, well, Cooper cups out, they need somebody to step up and he was kind of the name there. That's been the incumbent receiver there for some time. It was him, Tutu Atwell, uh, Ben Skoranek, and then they drafted Puka Nakua, who's been lights out excellent so far this year. But I thought Van Jefferson would be the one to take advantage of the open targets, and it was clearly Nakua. And they valued him so little that they sent Van Jefferson to the Atlanta Falcons, where he's not even thriving there in the 
team or in the system that has like three receivers on the roster. I mean, the Falcons are a nutcase that we'll get into during the coaching section here today. But I, I think that was a good call. You were trying to find the next guy up on that Rams roster. And sure enough, like you said, Puka Nakua was that guy. And if you you paid attention to beat writers around the Rams, they were definitely higher on Puka Nakua. I just think from a, a national standpoint, from the way we saw the Rams squad, we, we would haven't seen that coming. And that's that's why it was one of the bigger surprises to start the year. Um, the biggest thing I'll say, I'm going to list off. We, we have been talking about awards. I thought Lawrence would be the MVP candidate and there's still half a season. He turned it on, uh, the last half of the year last year. So if he goes on a stretch and he pulls off the number one seed where we were talking about Lamar in that context, Trevor Lawrence could definitely put himself in that conversation. But I, I think he's outside of the top five and maybe even outside of the top 10, if we were to do an MVP ranking at this point in the season. Um, JSN, I thought he would be offensive rookie of the year. And if we were to give it to a wide receiver at this point, it would go to a Jordan Addison. I don't know if he'd be the guy to get it. Um, but just, just the misfire on that one, I thought Bijan would lead the league in rushing. Unfortunately, Arthur Smith doesn't think he's a viable option at running back. And then, uh, Gibbs in Detroit, again, like two teams that spent really high draft picks on guys that I thought were, were plug and play like day one and Gibbs, when he has played, he's shown those flashes. I thought, I thought he would lead the league in scrimmage yards. I thought David Montgomery would be more of that red zone back and Gibbs would be the guy between the twenties that would be effective, not only in the passing game, but the running game. So maybe, maybe those things change in the second half of the year, but those were things where I think I was a little higher on rookie players and a young quarterback uh, than everybody else were. And I think these players would be good in the future, just not this year. I think with Bijan Robinson and Jameer Gibbs, it's an interesting study to look at the two people utilizing them. We see with Jameer Gibbs, they didn't really use him at the beginning of the year too, too much. But Dan Campbell kind of realized what he's able to do. And it took some injuries to their their other running backs like uh, Craig Reynolds and Montgomery. But they finally started using Gibbs in the correct way in the all-purpose back that he is. And now he's thriving. He's had two back-to-back excellent weeks. With Bijan Robinson, he came out the gate firing, scored a receiving touchdown against us in week one. I believe he had close to, or no, he had over 100 scrimmage yards that week. And then ever since then, he's just tailed off. And it's really been, as we'll talk about later, it's just been Arthur Smith trying to galaxy brain things and trying to think, trying to see that or think that he knows better than everyone else and not use the number eight overall pick that the team invested so heavily in when they could have had somebody like Jalen Carter or a receiver or an O-lineman or literally anything else. But they, they chose to take Bijan because he's so talented, and yet they seem to want to feed Algier more and even Cordero Patterson more touches. But like we said, we'll get on that later. And then the last one that we're both down on, I think we had a little bit of like the Homer part infect us on this pick, but we both had the Panthers being NFC South winners. For me, I thought they would build off of the success that they had last year at the end with Steve Wilkes. They would keep a similar identity and add in a rookie QB, which was a better QB than Sam Darnold, and just build off what they had last year, and they failed to do that. We we were talking about this pre-recording 
I, I think the biggest thing is, is when you look at the way we were playing ball at the end of last year, that made us look like kind of that 500 team is we were bringing in bigger bodies. We ran 12 personnel mm-hmm. or had six offensive linemen more on the field. And we just were going to pound the ball incessantly. Foreman leaves in free agency. And then all of a sudden this year, instead of kind of running those heavier sets, we're, we're running 11 personnel, 90% of the plays. And like you can't do that when you ship out your number one wide receiver trying to get your quarterback like the wide receiver room wasn't that good to begin with you ship out your best player and then you try to build it through free agency they're going to be growing pains and we should have seen that more uh the writing was on the wall in the preseason when they were using 11 personnel at these kind of rates when we had the injuries to the interior offensive linemen um we should have that, that th- those should have been the red flags that this team isn't ready to compete And I think both you and me were kind of distraught. I I wouldn't say distraught, disheartened after the 0-2 start because there was no reason why we did not start the year 1-1. The fact that we lost both to the Falcons and the Saints in the manners that we did, we kind of realized this wasn't the team. And it's just frustrating to see us trying to force a square peg into a round round hole. This doesn't work. This wasn't building off what we did last year. And had we kept Wilkes, we would have had some continuity with whoever the quarterback was this year. And again, it's just, it's frustrating. It's maddening to see kind of Tepper make some poor decisions from a management standpoint. And you wonder where it's going to go from here. I was distraught after those two games. Uh, I don't know about you. The the Falcons and Saints are not good teams. Um, And this isn't me being a hater. They're just, they're not well managed. They're just not good teams in general. And so to lose both of those games, albeit they were close, is just super disappointing to me. But yeah, hopefully there are some changes made moving forward for the Panthers. I think a uh, bad loss on Thursday would kind of help expedite that, but we'll see. And uh, let's get to more around the NFL stuff, maybe on a more (laughs) positive note. So we're not lamenting about the Panthers this whole week. Um, the, The big game that I wanted to talk about was Seattle and Baltimore. This was another Baltimore versus NFC, very strong team. And another great performance by Lamar Jackson and the Ravens against said NFC team. It was the, what the Ravens do on defense has been special to watch first the Detroit lions. And now the Seattle Seahawks, they pretty much load the line of scrimmage. They'll, they'll put five, six, even seven bodies on the line of scrimmage. Uh, They're able to simulate pressures that way because they're messing with kind of offensive line communications and trying to figure out who's coming after the quarterback and who's not. Gino was under duress the entire game. They weren't able to get their run game going. And it's just, it's, it's incredible to see Mike McDonald has a, a deep rotation at the defensive line. He's able to generate pressure. And then between Roquan Smith and then Kyle Hamilton, Kyle Hamilton and some of the other pieces they have on that back end, they're able to have some exotic looks and it just, it suffocates offenses so well. And it's, it's, it's so exciting to see, like, obviously I think we all would have wanted to see like a, a like 31, 37 barn burner. But to see this kind of domination, you just go, okay, when the Ravens play one of the true contenders, whether it be from the NFC or the AFC, like a Chiefs or the Bills, or I I think the Ravens-Jaguars would be a really, really, really good game. Those are the ones that I think are going to be really, really good to watch. It's going to be extremely competitive, but it is cool to see how well this Ravens team is put together to where they can just steamroll some of the better teams in the NFL. 
Yeah, McDonald had a great, I believe, not rookie year, but first year as their defensive coordinator last year. But he's just kicked it up another notch this year. I believe you said it in your play caller post this week that he should be the number one uh, candidate for a new head coaching job. And it's easy to see why. Like you're talking about the simulated pressures that they have, the way they're able to use some of the versatile back-end pieces that they invested a lot in, quite frankly, like Roquan Smith and Kyle Hamilton being a first-round pick. But it's all coming both together of, for that. Both of whom are not like premium positions. Like when you talk right. about like building a roster from like a smart analytical way that a lot of people write about, trading for and paying Roquan Smith and then drafting Kyle Hamilton with a first round pick are not good moves. And they have panned out and they look wonderful. And that's cool to see. Yeah, and then you, uh, the Kyle Hamilton draft, they had another first-round pick in that draft talking about non-premium positions in Tyler Linderbaum, their center, who's been excellent since they've oh, taken man. him. He's such but, a uh, Yeah, I mean, you, just, you need to draft good players. That's what it comes down to. But my point is that McDonald should absolutely be one of the – best candidates for a head coaching position this year and then on the offensive side of the ball the Ravens are continuing to hit their stride not only is it the the passing game that's taken it up a notch this year but their run game has also been pretty effective the past couple weeks Gus Edwards is getting uh like big rushing loads and converting them into touchdowns Justice Hill is a good scat back like good uh reception out of the backfield back stuff like that so even after losing J.K. Dobbins for the rest of the year in week one they're able to like What's the word like shoulder the load that he would have had with the other running backs on their roster. Yeah. And I think what's really cool about Todd Monken is the last time we saw him calling plays in the NFL was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers when he had Jameis Winston, when he had Ryan Fitzpatrick. And I was expecting it just to be an aerial attack, like all three downs, like we're throwing the ball like 60, 70, 80% of the time. Like we're, we're we are chucking the ball. And that's just hasn't been necessarily the case. Like they've they've found a balance and they've been able to incorporate some of these, I, I wouldn't say Greg Roman concepts, but been able to use, okay, we have this great offensive line. We have a mobile quarterback. Let's use this to our advantage to actually get some ideal running looks and and get Gus the ball. Because like you said, J.K. Dobbins goes down and Gus the bus. Like he's he's looked spectacular over the past like two or three weeks. And that's that's been cool to see when you can get that kind of production out of a backup running back. Yeah, the Ravens are certainly fun to watch. On the flip side, Seattle, like you said, their offense was completely stymied by that Ravens defense. It was good to see uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba have that one catch down the right sideline. It's good that he's showing flashes. So I don't want to say late into his uh, rookie year, but it took a while for him to get going. So it's good to see him getting the touches and showing some flashes. He he broke his wrist preseason. Uh, you had Jake Bobo. They had some of the tackle issues. So they were running a lot of 12 and 13 personnel uh, to kind of, and again, it's a, a smart play caller understands like, Hey, we have injuries to our offensive line. Let me actually have extra blockers. <clears throat> Bobby Sloak in Houston, Shane Waldron in Seattle. But like, apparently that's just not something that happens in Carolina. So it's, it's just very interesting to see, like when you understand the pieces you have to work with, how to best utilize them. And I think JSN over the past few weeks, like you said, he's shown spurts and that he can be a special player. It's just, he's kind of buried beneath the depth chart and had an injury to start the year. Yeah, that's, that's super fair. And then on the defensive side of the ball, the Ravens were able to score and run all over him, but Boye Mafe did have another impact play. He had a strip sack on Lamar Jackson. So they had he, the strip he's, he's just continuing and... to, to just eat this year. He's what I would say he's probably a top 10 edge rusher this year. So it's, it's cool to see. 
oh yeah from a production standpoint he's definitely there I'm going to be very interested to see end of year like analytics, like pressure numbers um, based on different passing situations to see like how elite he is. Like, is he like in the same breath as like a Max Crosby, a Miles Garrett, or is he a tier or so below, like maybe with like a Brian Burns kind of player. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, moving on, we're going to go into our coach talk. And last week, I don't know if it was before or after recorded, but Josh McDaniels was, no, he was fired uh day after Halloween. We recorded Halloween. So he mm-hmm. was fired after we recorded and they come out and both of us had talked about this. We picked the Giants to win on Sunday, which was both of our mistakes. The interim head coach, first game, that oorah, like we, we got that uh monkey off our back. Um, they, they handle business at home and um, they, they look a lot better. Uh, you, you talk to players in the locker room. They, they seem a lot happier and upbeat. Um, what was kind of your takeaway from the McDaniels firing kind of before breaking down some of the structural issues that were going on in Las Vegas? I mean, I, I thought it was necessary. He's not been a successful head coach at either stop. And it seems that he had rubbed a lot of the players the wrong way with uh, just some of his antics. You like have reports of him like taking over meetings saying, oh, don't ever talk bad about the Patriots. Or even back when he was the head coach of the Broncos saying that he could take a high school quarterback and take him to mm-hmm. the playoffs or something like that. It's just bizarre things. Uh it's easy to see that his ego was a big problem with him being a head coach. And they also fired the general manager, Dave Ziegler as well. So it looks like a whole organizational restart for them. And I, I always think it's good to get a head start on firing coaches when you know they're going to be fired. Uh, just so one, you can get a better look at upcoming candidates and two, you can give that interim head coach a better chance of getting a job, whether, whether it be with your organization or with another one for the next season so i good on al day or yeah it's al davis right not mark davis oh i think it's mark davis al davis oh, mark, was, uh, al, yeah he was uh, yeah. correct mark good on mark davis for uh getting the job done early but yeah yeah i, I always mix mark and al davis up but yeah I, i'm uh i don't want to say i'm happy about the firing because you're never happy that somebody gets fired but it was good to see them do the correct thing i think there's couple different approaches and nowadays the 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 shanahan or the mcveigh style of bringing in uh different mindsets kind of having a melting pot iron sharpening iron on the practice field you have those people and then you have more i i would say classical models whether you look at like a reed arc uh belichick or parcells arc where it's you have your scheme, uh, you have your coaches and players within that scheme. And while you definitely try to cater to your player skill set, it is much more about like the bigger picture than the individual pieces. So with those two in juxtaposition, what we see with Josh McDaniels, I think he's great from a schematic standpoint. Where I think he messed up is he brings in Dave Ziegler, a buddy of his, to be kind of the general manager, reason why both of them were dismissed at the same time. And you have this idea of you're going to build a roster a certain way, and they they didn't really see it through. You pay Derek Carr the instant you get there, you cut him the next offseason. And that was the whole reason why Devontae Adams even got traded the Raiders. And then what do you do? You try to bring in Jimmy G, and Jimmy G's, well, I mean, he's the mess that he is, and they found that out very quickly into this year. And this wasn't a complete team. They didn't have a vision for the team. And there were rumors last year that if it wasn't due to cash constraints, Josh McDaniels would have been fired then. 
And so at this point, I don't think it ever goes back to because a lot of people want to say this is indicative that the Patriots way or mantra doesn't work. And I think that mantra a lot of comes back to is it's do your job, like stay within the scheme and stay within the system. But like you said, leaders know how to orchestrate kind of that. You see Mike Tomlin, you see Bill Belichick over the years. There's an ability to kind of keep the locker room together. And when you're doing stuff like you, you tell your team, like, I, I could go to the playoffs with a high school quarterback. Like that's that's not boosting anybody's confidence. That's not boosting your team's morale. You are not putting them in positions to win. And this whole like mantra, do your job, then like completely falls apart, ED roads, and you don't look good. And I think what really comes down to is Josh McDaniels, as good as he is as a play caller or somebody who can scheme up plays, he's not a leader. He's he, he just isn't. And so you have to separate, okay, who can lead men, who can be a head coach and handle those responsibilities, and who can scheme those guys to where they're going to make the best plays on the field. And I think that has to be distinguished when you're making these decisions. Yeah, I agree. And then looking back at some of those signings, you talked about Derek Carr and that not working out, Jimmy G. And Jimmy G, it was injury, but that's who he is. He's been an injury-prone QB his whole career. Uh, Hunter Renfro, I believe, when they got there, they extended him. Um, he didn't do, like, anything last year. He hasn't. He ha like, he's hasn't been done anything this year. Chandler Jones, I believe, was another extension by them. Uh, I don't want to go down that road because – like you never know if it's like something like mental health related or something like that, but it's just hasn't worked out with them. Um, so all of the big signings that they have haven't worked. Jacoby Myers has been okay. That's a good one, but uh, that's also rank. a Patriots player. And so is, McDaniels yeah. is used to that for his system. So like outside of that, all of their signings have been pretty poor. I don't want to say it's as bad as it was with uh, was it Gruden and Mike Mayock because that, that was just a shit show for lack of a better word between Gruden and then uh, Mayock's drafting pedigree with p picking only Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio state players, no matter how high or low they were on consensus boards, that's all they would pick and they would all not work out. But yeah, it just, it just wasn't good there and it was time to move on. That's the, yeah. the whole crux of the, the spiel no, it, I'm giving you. It's, it's definitely time to move on from that respect. Um, one of the things I posted about it yesterday on Twitter is that retread coaches, I don't think are necessarily it. Um, I think when you have an elite or close to an elite coach, that stuff works. Uh, I.e. like a Sean Payton, I think he'll pull Denver, that franchise together over the next couple of years. Doug Peterson, what he's done in Jacksonville. I, both of those phenomenal jobs. But when you see the job Dennis Allen's doing in New Orleans, that's iffy. You see the job Todd Bowles is doing in Tampa. Another so-so. Eh, and then, like, what Ron Rivera is going on with the Washington Commanders. I mean, Magic Johnson has openly ripped this guy on Twitter. So it's, yeah. you, you see some of these second stints, and I, it just it doesn't pan out for some of these guys, and I don't I don't get it. Um, Frank Reich, it's the same thing with him. Um, Frank Reich and Sean Payton, they were the two retreads this year. They look, honestly, substantially worse than the jobs that Jonathan Gannon, Shane Steichen, and D'Amico Ryans have been doing. And those were the other three coaches hired this year. So it's one of those things that I think people need to be cautious of guys that failed the first go-round because I don't think it's going to work the second time around unless they were successful the first go-round. 
And that's like, I, I don't know what it is with ownership. Maybe they just like a guy, maybe they want a guy from a certain system. Um, but that, I don't think that's a successful way about going, hiring a head coach. Well, looking even, even further with Mark Davis, the last coach that they hired before McDaniels was John Gruden, right? Mm-hmm. Another, another retread and Gruden been out a of Raider, the game for, Raider. Yeah. Like yeah, legend, he, he, but he'd been out of the game for what, like 12 years or something. Yeah doing uh, ESPN Monday Night Football. Then what do they do when they sign him? They give him a 10-year, $100 million contract when they signed him. Yep. And they they ended up firing him within like a year and a half or two years. So obviously they need to reevaluate how they're hiring over in Las Vegas. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that unless you've proven and guys like Andy Reid and Sean Payton and Doug Peterson, they've proven that they know how to get it done unless you've proven that I don't think that being a retread, like there's no reason for you to hire a retread when you could take a chance on some of these young upcoming promising minds, like a Ben Johnson, this upcoming cycle guy. We're about to talk about Kevin O'Connell, D'Amico Ryan's. He's not an offensive play caller, but his defensive schemes were the best in the league last year. And he has his players playing well within their system there. So I, I just think the upside is higher on some of these upcoming coaches rather than some of the retread coaches like you're talking about. Uh, Ron Rivera is another one. Yeah. No, and like the, and there are so so many illustrious trees to kind of pull from. And like if you're going to go retread like I for instance like over like a Dennis Allen or a Josh McDaniels, why aren't you going to Brian Flores? Guy took over an abysmal Miami Dolphins squad and then strung together two consecutive winning seasons before getting fired. And that that shows production that shows turning around a poor franchise. And obviously, like what's going on right now in Miami with Mike McDaniel, like obviously that looks like they took the right direction. But like if you're going to go that route, exactly like what we talked about, get somebody that was successful, that that actually had the ability to instill a culture that the players respected, like that stuff sticks, that stuff holds. Um, and you see that with the Mike Tomlins, the Pete Carroll's, the I, I know Andy Reid is a schematic guy, but like players love playing for him because he's he's a player's coach. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's hard to see what the allure behind McDaniel's was there. And I mean, he was offered the Colts job, too. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he he must interview super well. and must uh, kiss a lot of ass in interviews. But moving on to a coach that was very good this week uh we, we talked about him a little bit like one minute ago kevin o'connell they come into this week with jaron hall the rookie out of byu starting because kurt goes down last week and then they also trade for josh dobbs from the arizona cardinals but he's not ready yet they traded for him on tuesday i believe it was on the deadline on tuesday so this was going to be jaron hall's week josh dobbs i believe didn't even practice or didn't take reps with the starters in practice so we go into the game Jaron Hall gets knocked out, I believe, at the end of the first quarter. And what happens other than Josh Dobbs coming in and getting the job done and getting the win over the Atlanta Falcons? And we'll talk about the Falcons here in a second, too. But just an excellent performance from not only Joshua Dobbs, but from Kevin O'Connell to keep the ship afloat and get the win there. Justin Jefferson went down and this team was one and four. There were talks that they needed to ship out Kirk Cousins strip this roster to the bones, and shoot for the future. They have now rattled off four wins. One of them, like you just elicited and kind of mentioned, is Kirk Cousins wasn't even in the game. They they are down to a guy they, they traded for halfway through a week 
And this guy came in and balled out. And that just shows you. And I, I was hearing reports. Uh, the Athletic did a good breakdown, uh, kind of on one of their podcasts, of, like kind of the dynamic between Kevin O'Connell and Josh Dobbs and some of those plays is that the play would kind of get called in. There's terminology that Dobbs is obviously familiar with being a veteran quarterback. And he's going, OK, so you're going to do this if they move here. Uh, you're going to throw here if you get this look. And so it was very cool to see kind of them maximize kind of the time leading up to the snap, giving Josh Dobbs the best opportunity to succeed. And it just goes to show like Kevin O'Connell is a really good coach. Like he, he, he can scheme some things up and we're seeing it with Zach Taylor in Cincinnati, slow starts by both of these teams, but they are now starting to heat up. And if the Vikings can get this kind of production from Dobbs moving forward and Justin Jefferson comes back, like, this is a wild card team. Like, like this is crazy to say, but at five and four and what they just got out of Dobbs, like I very wholeheartedly believe this is a team that'll be the six, seven seed in the NFC. I agree. And I think that last year, them going what was it, 13 and four, 14 and three. I think it was 13 and four. Yep. They kind of got the, uh, the, oh, they super overachieved pass. So Kevin yep. O'Connell didn't get a ton of credit for it. But 13 wins is 13 wins. I don't care what your like your base EPA is, what your net rating is in terms of like point differential. 13 wins is 13 wins, all right? And so I don't think he really got the credit for that. And so this year we're, we're thinking, oh, they're going to regress because they won every one-score game last year. And it started to look like that to start the year. Like you talked about, they it, were one and four. It was all, it was but, all the flip. They, they were mm -hmm. losing all those one score games and everybody was like, oh, the irony. Like, and, and that's what right. it was. It was a little bit of an unluck to start the year. Same thing with the Giants. But the difference is Kevin O'Connell has his team turned around over the past few weeks. Like you're talking about four and oh, the last four weeks. Granted, they were some close games, but they don't have Justin Jefferson. Now they don't have Kirk Cousins, who you might not like Kirk or not. He was playing like a top 10 QB this year, maybe better than that. He was playing and, lights and out did, this year. What did Kevin O'Connell do this offseason? He realized he had an issue on the defensive side of the ball. And Quezzi, their general manager, who is analytic, like kind of driven, he kind of mm -hmm. strips the defensive side of the ball down a little bit so that they can kind of build towards the future, get all, out of contracts that were bad for them. And they bring in Brian Flores. And about halfway through the season, like people are buying into a system. And this defense that we talked about that didn't have a lot of talent is starting to hold its own. And like, that's cool to see that Kevin O'Connell realized, hey, let me upgrade in a position that's going to help us regardless of who we have on that side of the ball. And like, that's just cool to see. Like that's, that's talent recognizing talent. Absolutely. With a, uh, a player talent deficiency, the defense has improved uh, due to the coaching talent, like you're referring to. Uh, so just an excellent job by Kevin O'Connell there. And like, yeah, I agree. I think that they can make a push for the wild card because as advertised, the NFC is weak. We have the division winners and then you have the Cowboys and Seahawks. And then after that, it's just, it's bare bones, so they can absolutely make a run at it. And we alluded to this before. The team that they faced on the other side of the ball, the Atlanta Falcons. We talked about Arthur Smith oh I think, the past two or three weeks, but it's just gotten worse and worse. I mean, first it was, what, the toxic group think, uh, thing. And so, all right, that sure. That blew up in his face, like, <laughs> to the point that, like, he benched him the week after saying it. Right, like, sure, you look – you are an NFL coach and I'm not. So like, okay, maybe I am buying into toxic group thing. Nope, you benched him. <laughs> and it was in part due to the concussion. 
But as we see this week, I don't believe Ritter is still in the concussion protocol, but he's already named Taylor Heineke the starter. So that's like two losses for him right there. And then the other one with the personnel package stuff like that, him talking about, oh, Bijan Robinson does so much off the ball for us. You know what he also does for you? Stuff on the ball. This tweet is from this is another Jacob. Shout out to all the Jacobs out there. This is from Jacob Gibbs. He's a fantasy football guy. So it is fantasy related, but it, it does relate with actual NFL stats. Uh, the first stat I'm going to give you, yards before contact per rush. The NFL average is 1.27. Bijan Robinson averages 1.73 yards before rush. So pretty pretty substantially above the NFL average, like a third – 33% above it. You want to guess what Tyler Algiers is? Yards before contact per rush? I, it's got to be less than two yards, right? Oh, I mean, the average is less than two, but Algiers, the, remember, the NFL average is 1.27 yards before contact per rush. Algiers is 0.3, so almost a full yard less than the, the average. So not good at dodging tackles when the defensive line is broken through or not good in open space. Second uh, stat I have for you. This is a short yardage rushing. Three or fewer yards to the first down. Th- this okay. includes uh, touchdowns, too, in the goal-to-go scenarios. So these the goal-to-go uh, situations, three or less yards, yeah. So yeah, what's a- and three or less yards to any first down, too. Yep. So j- just short yardage rushing. Tyler Algier has 23 attempts. Bijan has 17 attempts. Their yards, Tyler Algier averages 2.3 yards per rush in those attempts. <laughs> Bijan averages 5.7, so about two and a half times better. And Bijan's success rate in those is obviously 65%. Algiers is 57%. So not only is Bijan better at eluding contact, he's better in short yardage opportunities and taking contact. He's a better bruiser than Tyler Algier. And then the third one, explosive runs, and which are runs... Uh, of 10 yards or more explosive rush rate. So it's a percentage. Bijan is 15 and a half percent. Algier is 6.9%. The only running back with more explosive, or a higher explosive rush rate than Bijan with a hundred plus attempts. Cause obviously a chain would like crush every other running back out there is Raheem Mostert. Who's in that same system. So in terms of explosive run rates, it's Devon a chain, Raheem Mostert who are in the, like the best rushing system in the league by a wide margin. And then Bijan Robinson. And so, there's just zero statistical evidence that supports Algier being on the field more than Bijan Robinson. But of course, well, I mean, Arthur Smith knows more than we do. So he has to galaxy brain it. I'm thinking about there's an exact scenario like this. They were on the goal line. I believe it was first and mm-hmm. go from the one first play jet sweep, Janu Smith rushing play yep. stopped for a loss. It's I believe a negative one yard loss. So instead of running, Kyle Pitts on a jet sweep or the guy you traded for in Van Jefferson or the number eight overall pick and Bijan Robinson or the like super weapon that Cordero Patterson it's, it's is his point from Tennessee. Like, of course, yeah, it's, Arthur it's Smith is going to. Yeah. Yeah. Second play pass attempt to John U. Smith incomplete third play rush from Tyler Algier stuffed loses yards incomplete. They have to kick a field goal. And do you know what they lost the game by? I believe it was by it was a one score game. They had to, uh, Dobbs had to, uh, Dobbs got a t- the rushing touchdown, by the way, incredible rushing touchdown. 31-28. It was, it was a 30, three oh. point. So if they get a touchdown there, they win because they, assuming they hit the extra point. Um, so yeah, Arthur Smith, like, come on, man, you, you, I promise you, and I'm not saying that he's not listening to this, but I promise you're not smarter than everyone else. All right. Just use the players that the front office has given you. 
who are supremely talented. That's why they went that high. Use them the correct way. It's just, it's maddening. Like, like you said, like all those points about Bijan being a better runner, whether it be avoiding contact with contact, the whole nine yards, Bijan was the complete package. And Nate Tice with the athletics thought that the Falcons would have a top five offense, which I think both you and I thought was a little mind boggling going mm-hmm. into the season, but had they actually been like leaning on Bijan a little bit more, like he would probably have some monster games. He would probably keep them in some of these games. And exactly like you said, this, this concept of like galaxy branding, like, Oh, well the defense is scheming for these players. So I'm going to use my backups. Like, what are, what are you doing? Like, look at, like, as much as, like, people want to nag on Mike McCarthy and whatnot, he at least is getting his playmakers involved. Like, he has mm-hmm. been feeding C.D. Lamb. Like, that's your star? Get your star the ball. Like, it's, it's it's like, the Eagles, they do it well. Whether it was Shine Steichen last year or Brian Johnson this year, like, they're like, okay, we're going to force feed A.J. Brown. If Dallas Goddard and Devontae Smith are open, we're going to get them the ball. You don't see them, like, scheming these exotic play looks to go to Zacchaeus or, like, Rashad Penny or, like, guys that are, like, buried on the depth chart. It's just wild. Like, I, right. I, I don't even know how he's a coach still. Like, he should be fired. The talent level in the NFL is so, I would say it's so even to the fact that you can't play your backups trying to outsmart the other team's defense because even if you do outsmart them, their de- their defensive starters are better than your backup on offense. So yep. they're going to run Algier down. You have to play the supremely talented player. The, I had Bijan Robinson third overall on my board out of everyone for a reason. He's just that good. I, I, ahead of guys like Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, he's just that good, and they refuse to use him. It's it's very disheartening, especially from a. I promise this isn't a fantasy football rant, but I am a Bijan fantasy owner, and like I'm sure all the other Bijan fantasy owners are disappointed too. But football fans in general should be disappointed with him. Yeah, all in all, like it it was a true like that game was a testament of play callers that know what they're doing, that know how to use the pieces that are like. <laughs> on their roster compared to somebody who's just completely disregarding top 10 picks. Like at this rate, you should have packaged some of these and gotten a quarterback at least like, mm-hmm. like the, a the Lamar handier. Jackson. Well, well that, or you could have traded up this year, try to get, or you could have taken a Will Levis. Like, like what, regardless of what you would have tried to do, like getting a premium position and just doing the analytically smart thing would have probably been the better decision. Like the year they took Kyle Pitts, take Penny Sewell. If you, you had an all-star tackle right now, that would probably do wonders if you're going to hand the ball off to Tyler Algier. But, like, again, this is just – it's it's doesn't make sense. His time is definitely going to be up at the end of this year. Like, I, I don't see how the owner in Atlanta is going to keep him around. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Now, moving on, uh, we're going to move to something a little bit more uh, light and upbeat uh, compared to kind of this uh, Debbie Downer stuff with Arthur Smith. And that is the best performances of the week. And a game that we didn't really touch on at all leading up to this was the Texans Buccaneers game. That was, that was a barn burner. I like going into this week, that would not have been a game I circled as being a must watch, but watching that on red zone, seeing some of the highlights afterwards, uh, seeing some of the throws that both Stroud and Mayfield were making all game, we're just fun to watch. Like that—that's what you want to see on a Sunday afternoon. 
Yeah, it was going back and forth, especially in that fourth quarter. I think there were three or four lead changes. But the difference was C.J. Stroud, 470 yards and five touchdowns. So I think it was four different receivers. He was just outstanding. I mean, he wasn't facing a ton of pressure, but when he even when he did, he stood tall, made the throws, and he got him the win just with his arm. Some of the some of the passes he had the Tank Dell were absolutely phenomenal. Um, I know a lot of Panthers fans have made the jokes like, "Oh, well, if we had taken Stroud and Tank Dell, um, we'd look a lot different." And maybe that'd be the case, but I I would argue then why not take Bryce Young and Tank Dell? It's one of those things that mm-hmm. um, taking the better wide receiver, and I think Tank Dell was uh, was rated a little bit higher than Mingo on your board. Um, it's just one of those things that sometimes it's better to just take a a ready-made prospect that can be an impact player day one rather than a a raw raw talent that you have to develop on pretty much short notice because Mingo throughout most of the season has played 90 plus percent of the snaps each game. Yeah, I certainly think Mingo's ceiling is probably higher than Tank Dell's, but the thing about Dell is he can get open and that's what we need right now. And as far as the Stroud Bryce debate goes, I think we should probably wait like a little bit longer for that one, but I, there's no way Stroud would be succeeding behind our offensive line right now. No, it's, it's just, I don't think prime Tom Brady could be succeeding behind our line with our receivers, but that's neither here nor there. Stroud had an excellent, excellent game this week. And then another QB, we talked about him earlier, Josh Dobbs coming in mid game, no reps with the starters and getting the win. I saw a breakdown, a Twitter thread. He, like when he had to go in, he went over to the sideline. He gathered all five offensive mm-hmm. linemen around him. He's like, <laughs> all right, we're going to go over my five primary cadences. Let's get it. Let's go. His, he was taking snaps on the sideline from the center with the other linemen around him to hear the way he says the cadences to get it done. And then somebody reported when he was in the huddle, he would say, like they would call out plays. And obviously he doesn't know the entire playbook yet. So he would ask the receivers. He'd be like, hey, what do I have on this side? And guys like Jordan Addison and KJ Osborne would tell him, all right, these are the routes you have here. These are the routes you have here. And he made it work. It's just, it's hard to overstate the effort that Josh Dobbs put in this game to get the win. And even it wasn't all with his arm either. He had some outstanding rushing plays. He converted like he was, a fourth. He was the leading rusher on the team. He had yeah, seven he, carries for 66 yards. The next and leading a carrier was Madison at 44 yards who didn't have a touchdown. So yeah, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the, he had the game winning or go ahead touchdown at the end of the game too. Just, an, I would say Stroud definitely had the counting numbers, obviously best performance there. But in terms of just effort and like putting the entire team on your back, there's nobody probably throughout this entire year that did more than what Josh Dobbs did this week. I mean, we talked about Christian McCaffrey's trade last year, how he was traded midweek. And I think he was traded on a Thursday, ended up playing on a mm-hmm. Sunday. But it was one of those things, he, he played a couple of snaps and we're like, that's pretty impressive to kind of get a couple plays in. And this is a guy that comes in and wins a game at the toughest position in the league. And at, at the end of the day, exactly like you said, his counting stats weren't like the superb, like off the charts kind of stuff. Uh, he averaged only 5.3 yards per attempt. So it wasn't like he was just knocking back these haymakers. But again, like what we were talking about with the Arthur Smith dilemma is, hey, get the, the ball to your playmakers. 
TJ Hawkinson and Jordan Addison, Hawkinson with 12 targets, Addison with seven, like those are your two leading guys. You're going to try to get those guys the ball as much as possible. And then what Dobbs was able to do with his legs, uh, it was just phenomenal because like where I was talking about his, his yards per attempt was like 5.3, his rush yards per attempt was 9.4. So when he got out of the pocket, he was dangerous. That wasn't something the Falcons defense was ready for. And it's the reason why on a, a short week on a new team, why he makes this, this list. Absolutely. We're going to need to start giving him credit like uh, like the Josh McCowns or Fitzpatrick's is back in the day of being <laughs> Joe best. Webb, Joe Webb. Don't disrespect. All right. Joe Webb too, preseason <laughs> legend. But I'm saying like guys that can come in no matter what it is and win games for you, like journeyman guys, because yeah. Josh Dobbs, I believe in the past like year has been on five different rosters. And I had kind of written him off because I believe he came in at the end of last year for Tennessee. Mm -hmm. and do much there and then he signs on the browns roster didn't do much there was traded to the cardinals i believe mm -hmm. and then is pretty scrappy pretty uh good puts up the fight with the cardinals and now he's getting stuff done here in minnesota i think everybody needs to start giving josh dobbs credit and it was cool to see that uh the vikings twitter account posted that after that game they had a ton of josh dobbs jerseys in the team shop that's the kind of love that he needs going forward that's awesome the final two best performances came in one particular game, and that was one of one of the games I would say would be circled on this past week, week nine. It was it was one of the matchups in the four o'clock window that were really kind of like the okay, let's let's see what these two teams are about. And that was the Philadelphia Eagles hosting the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, was a twenty eight to twenty three finish. Uh, Cowboys had several opportunities at the end of the game to kind of pull away and win it. Unfortunately, we're unable to, but both Jalen Hurts and Dak Prescott had three touchdowns apiece. I think Jalen Hurts had two through the air and one rushing. Um, but it was one of those things that like this is these are really the two teams that are the class of the NFC. Uh, we saw them go toe to toe. It'll be interesting to see kind of what these teams look like the second matchup in Dallas in a few weeks. Yeah, Jalen Hurts kind of had an iffy year to start the year, like the first five weeks or so. It was like seven touchdowns and seven interceptions. But over the past couple of weeks, he's really come on strong, limited the mistakes, and has put the team in really good positions, not only throwing to A.J. Brown, who's had just a great like six-week stretch or whatever, but to guys like Goddard, who went down in this game, and Devontae mm -hmm. Smith when he went down. He's putting the team in the best position. And then Dak Prescott on the other end, finding C.D. Lamb, finding Jake Ferguson, who's looking like Dalton Schultz last year, just like the tight end of the Dallas Cowboys, just just finding the open spots and catching the touchdowns, basically, that's what Schultz did. But both of these guys really dueled it out. And in the end, it came down to that fourth down play, and CeeDee Lamb was just short of the line to gain. Unfortunately. And, yeah, it looks like the Eagles pulled out of there with the win. And then, like you said, in Dallas, it's going to be interesting to see how it uh, shakes up because I believe the – Cowboys had generally owned the Eagles the past few years, so it'll be interesting to see. Well, what was interesting, I think Cooper Rush started against the Eagles in Philly mm -hmm. last year, and then it was Gardner Minshew at the time, who was Jalen Hurts' backup, was the guy who played in Dallas. So hopefully both of these quarterbacks are healthy again for a round two because I think like that adds another element of juice, um, makes it a little bit more competitive. You have the tush-push element with the Eagles, so a lot of fun narratives. These are two of the best teams in the NFC. It was a lot of fun to kind of watch the game go back and forth. Um, moving in, uh, these 
one of these guys uh, we have kind of loosely on this list. Um, but the MVP watch, I think the top dog right now, and it's not really a question unless A.J. Brown and Tyree Kill really start um, pushing towards that 2K mark that it looked like they were kind of projected to kind of hit earlier in the season. Um, it's Lamar Jackson. Like at this point, Patrick Mahomes, he's looked shaky. Uh has looked shaky when he's played teams above 500. Um, Josh Allen, I, until like the fourth quarter, like he's he's a pumpkin the first three. So it's it's one of those things that he hasn't looked consistent. Uh, Jalen Hurts has been banged up with his knee, and then he had the one illness versus the Bucks game. Just hasn't looked himself this year. Um, and then I think you have here Joe Burrow. But, I mean, he he looked off the first couple of weeks. So, it's, like, one of those things, like, who are you really going to put in this discussion? And, like, my question is, like, obviously you have Lamar before, like, the preseason. Like, is this really the guy that's going to run away with it if they pull off the number one seed? I think if they do get the number one seed, then he's going to have a really strong case for that MVP. Mostly because Mahomes is going to have voter fatigue at some point. Because I mean, he would probably deserve it every year or every other year. But, like you were talking about, Mahomes... Tua Tagovailoa, Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts, they've all had their fair share of stinkers so far this year. And I would say those are the main competition to Lamar Jackson so far. Granted, uh, the Chiefs are still 7-2. and two. Uh, The Eagles are 8-1 and one now. I think yeah. they're 8-1. Yeah, the Dolphins have a positive record. The The Bills are still – their offense is still good despite them being 5-4. and four. So it, it's really going to be up – I think it's really just going to come down to who's that one seed at the end of the year. Then I had Joe Burrow as well. Like you said, he started slow, but they always start slow. And I believe he was a top three MVP vote-getter last year. And this year you could even, like, have an excuse for them starting slow with his calf injury. But I do think towards the end of the year, as the Bengals come along further – that he's going to keep padding his stats there. So I think that's just a name to watch out for. I wasn't really putting him in the discussion so far as much as I would say down the stretch, if the Bengals tighten up like they usually do, uh, that he would be in that discussion as well. Yeah. No, I like if we're talking about guys that can make a second half push, I think Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence, those are quarterbacks that if they were to turn it on, their teams are in a position where they could easily put themselves in a position where they're a division winner. They're one of the top two seeds. And that helps with that conversation, like you said, along with the stat padding. Um, moving on, uh, we'll we'll get more into some of these topics as the weeks go on and as the season kind of comes to a close, which it's, it's crazy. Like, season's already halfway gone. Um, we need to look ahead to something that's going to go down in the next, like, 50 or so hours, and that's the Panthers at Chicago. Uh, what are our keys to victory? What do we need to stay away from? Um, how, if Fields is playing, how do we shut him down? Um, because I, I don't know if I'm afraid of Fields as the passer, but I am afraid of that run game if Fields is active. I'll say this. Um, before Fields' injury, the previous two games versus Denver and Washington, he was, I don't want to say lights out, but he was a very effective passer. So if he's able to get back to that, I think the secondary is going to have to lock down that back end. It'll be interesting to see Dante Jackson against DJ Moore. I assume that's going to be the primary matchup with JC Horn st still on. I, I want to say still on IR, but um, that's going to be interesting. Von Bell. Yeah, uh, Von, Vel Von Bell should be back this week. That's actually a huge addition, in my opinion. 
with uh, Xavier Woods being healthy as well. And then Brian Burns will be out this week, as well as C.J. Henderson with a concussion. So I'm interested to see what the outside linebacker defensive end rotation looks like because uh, Justin Houston is on IR. Itor Gross Matos is on IR. It looks like Marquise Haynes is coming off of IR. So it'll be interesting to see if he starts. But it's that's going to be the key for me is our defensive line against their offensive line because – uh, with all due respect, their defense hasn't been uh, up to par this year. I think this is a good get-right game potentially for our offense if we're able to like just hold up along the offensive line. So I think the keys to the game are the defensive, our defensive line pressuring Fields or Bajan if Bajan ends up being the starter. In which case, we're probably likely to get worse performance. But I think that's the key to the game. There, defensive line has to be stout against the run first of all. And then just needs to pressure the QB. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. Cole Komet has been a huge part of their offense recently. Um, I think he'll be a security blanket for Justin Fields. And it'll be interesting to see how we cover him because Dante Jackson on DJ Moore will be interesting. I think DJ Moore is going to get the better of him on that matchup. Mm -hmm. But if he's the only guy that's torching us and we're able to kind of keep Darnell Mooney in check, and like you said, we're able to stop the run with our front, um, we, we have a chance there, there is a chance. Like this is one of those games that like, maybe you do get right because the bears defense isn't good. Um, it's just one of those things that so much has gone wrong. And I think the big thing is, is can Bryce, um, regardless of, if the offensive lines imploding around him, if wide receivers aren't getting open to just throw it at the feet of your running back, like stop taking sacks, stop trying to force passes. I would rather us just go back and, go back to the line of scrimmage that it started at. Like, I think that'll help so much more in in moving the ball and having good drives down the field because I think I think we can win this game if we put up 21, 24 points. This doesn't have to be a barn burner for us to win, um, but we do need to be smart about what we're doing with the football. Absolutely. Hopefully we can win by putting up 24 I think Washington would have a gripe to pick or a bone to pick with you if you said that before their Thursday night game against uh, Chicago, where they did put up 24, but it was not nearly enough there. Yeah, um, what what I would hope with is because um, that Washington game came shortly after the Denver game, Fields was in a little mm -hmm. bit of a rhythm. Him coming off that injury, I expect him to not be just on the money in the first half, um, and that, that's what's going to give us a chance. Yeah, if we can turn Fields over – uh, one or two times, I think uh, I think it should be a pretty pretty solid chance that we win that one. But uh, as we as we always do, we talk about our future Panthers, what the the stars of the college level did last week. We had a bunch of great games last week, a lot of good ranked matchups. The first one being Kansas State versus Texas that went to overtime. Texas did end up winning without Quinn Ewers at quarterback. Malik Murphy filled in pretty well for him. People I wanted to point out in that game are Adonai Mitchell, their receiver transfer from Georgia. He's just been outstanding this year. I think I've looked at my preliminary receiver rankings, and I think I've settled on him being a preliminary top five receiver for me behind, obviously, Harrison Jr., Malik Neighbors, and then Keon Coleman and Odunze from Washington. I think those four are pretty solid, but Adonai Mitchell has just been outstanding for me. Big body has the speed, willing blocker, which is huge for receivers at the next level. And then Cooper Beebe for Kansas State, the interior offensive lineman. He did a really good job against a stout Texas front. And for Panthers fans, if you've been paying attention, we might need some interior offensive linemen next year with how our, our O-line's been playing. 
And then a couple more guys, Nazir Stackhouse, the defensive tackle for Georgia. He got really gifted an interception against 12th ranked Mizzou this week. He didn't bring it all the way back, but he got close to a touchdown there. And then in the LSU Alabama game, this is the one that I had circled, obviously being an Alabama fan. This is the one I wanted to watch. And they have a ton of draftable players on both teams. But the ones that stood out to me were Malik Neighbors, the receiver for LSU, 10 catches, 171 yards and a touchdown. Like I said, after Marvin Harrison Jr., I think it's really up in the air for who's wide receiver two between neighbors, Keon Coleman from FSU and Roma Dunze from Washington. All three of them are outstanding, but Malik Neighbors has some DJ Moore to his game in terms of the yak potential that he gets after getting the ball. And But I, I also think he's a bit faster than DJ, which is going to be interesting to see how he ends up in the league. And then Justin Aboigby for Alabama, the interior defensive lineman slash defensive end he forced a ton of pressures onto Jaden daniels lsu's qb and if you watch lsu you know their qb is very elusive very slippery and a boy b was a big reason that their their o-line collapsed and forced daniels into running the ball more often than he would like uh obviously he ended up running the ball for like 150 yards so he made the most out of those pressures but a boy b did a good job causing said pressures now, to go back to Napers, regardless if he's wide receiver two, wide receiver three of this class, this is a guy, like when you talk about wide receiver U, Alabama and LSU are great universities pumping out wide receiver uh, talent. Ohio State's up there as well. But mm-hmm. if you have an elite prospect coming out of one of those three schools, I guarantee you they're probably going to be a stud at the next level. Um, well- I would... Oh, I just wanted to I just wanted to butt in real quick. You talk about the LSU receiver talent neighbors and the his other draftable receiver running mate, Brian Thomas Jr. Their records like their numbers are better than those of Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson at this point in that nuclear season that they had back in 2019. So it's really interesting to see how this duo being neighbors and Thomas Jr. compares to some of the past duos like Odell and Landry. Jefferson and Chase, they're actually outperforming them, which I didn't think would be possible so soon, but that's what's happening. And, and that, that's exactly the point. Like when, when you just elicited the, both of those duos, like when Landry and Odell got drafted, phenomenal uh, play during their rookie contracts and even into that second contract um, with Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase, they have been ballers, arguably top 10 wide receivers since they took the field. Um, and that's it's just cool to see. So it's it's one of those things that when you when you have these programs that do so well at pretty much developing some of these talented players at certain positions, you just got to span it. Uh, I know we try to galaxy brain it with a Terrace Marshall, but like if th- these are the superstars of these offenses, take them, uh, move up to get them. I, I can completely understand moving up and trying to draft somebody like this because wide receiver is a premium position. When you can give your quarterback a, a premium target to throw to and he can make you look right when you're wrong, that's that's what you need. Absolutely. You see what Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddle, Devontae Smith, all from the same class did for their QB development. It's, it's huge to have a number one receiver. It is. Now, we will post, uh, like we typically do at the end of the week, uh, our weekly bets and our pickums. Currently, Jacob leads the all-time series at the halfway point. He is 86-50 and 50 on the year. I am one game behind him at 85-51. and 51. Where I have the leg up is our against the spread. Uh, Jacob will sometimes pick um, the money line and the over. 
Um, but his picks, he's 11 and 16 on the year. I'm 14, 12 and one on the year. So I have a little bit of an edge there. Uh, not like this stark in contrast. Um, but as we wrap up our perfect takes, mine is, is that I think the Josh Dobbs mania, even though what Kevin O'Connell, what they did in Atlanta was pretty special. I think with New Orleans coming to town, Dennis Allen and that defense, what they're going to be able to do to Kevin O'Connell in that offense is they're going to be able to shut them down, limit what they do. And I don't think they score above 20 points. Again, this is an offense without Justin Jefferson. If you can take away Jordan Addison and TJ Hawkinson, I think you can make this a one-dimensional team. And it, it'll be interesting to see, but I think the Saints will come out on top on Sunday. That's an interesting one. I think uh, when Dobbs, when the passing game did get taken away, he showed that he was able to move the ball with his legs. So I do think that's an interesting one. I have the Vikings winning that one as of right now. Uh, my perfect take is that Lamar Jackson will continue his MVP campaign as the Baltimore Ravens stretch their division lead. I believe uh, we talked about it. I talked about that earlier. I believe they're either two games or two and a half games ahead of everyone in the division. And they play the Cleveland Browns this week. The Browns actually come to Baltimore this week. They've been hapless all year on the offensive side of the ball. The way Mike McDonald's has their defense uh, schemed up, I think it's going to be not a cakewalk, but a pretty convincing win against the division foe Cleveland Browns this week. I mean, they beat them 27 to three the last time. Like I, it's mm -hmm. just at this point, like it's one of those things that like, I feel like they're going to beat the door off this team. Um, I'm more intrigued by the game the following week between them and the Bengals because at this point, Joe Burrow's a little bit healthier. That was a 27-24 game. Um, they had that wild, wild card finish last year. That's that's the rivalry. That's the juice I want to see. But, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Lamar Jackson is probably going to perform adequately. Um, I will say this Cleveland Browns defense is, is star-studded. So it will be interesting to see if he's able to put up gaudy numbers. And if he is, like I think that only cements his MVP case that much more. Absolutely. Cool. Well, with that, we are wrapped up with, I believe, we're, we're at episode 18, 19, somewhere in there. We're approaching episode 20. Uh, so pretty cool milestone for Perfect Takes as we approach. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of fun doing this, and we look forward to the rest of the season. And with that, we're done.